0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Molle. She is an assistant professor of social psychology at VU Amsterdam. She is a psychologist studying human cooperation, morality, and the role of emotions in decision-making. She draws upon insights from social and evolutionary psychology, behavioral economics, and evolutionary biology to better understand the factors under, underlying cooperative and punitive decisions. And those are the topics we're going to talk about today. So, Dr. Mollio, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Ricardo, for this introduction and for uh, inviting me to the show. It's, uh, it's very nice to be here.
0: Great. Thanks. So, let's start by talking about norms so from a sort of social psychology i guess we could also say anthropology or anthropological perspective what are norms what characterizes them i mean if you go into a new society if you do field work how do you distinguish what is a norm from what is not a norm
1: hmm Yeah, so um, I would say that uh, norms are sort of informal rules, so rules that are not necessarily uh, formalized or implemented by uh, an authority or an institution. So the informal component is important. And then that um, what is important is also that they are uh, shared. So people have kind of a shared expectation. About what is appropriate, what is uh, um, the right thing to do versus what is morally wrong. So, um, yeah, in my thinking about this, and also in the way that I have studied social norms in my research, I, I draw a lot about, uh, I draw a lot on uh, the work of Christina Bicchieri um, and this uh, this distinction between kind of empirical expectations. Uh, what we think most other people uh, will do, right? Like uh, um, how do they typically behave? And also normative expectations. So what is considered really appropriate and correct? And um, yeah, as as far as normative expectations go, there is this additional uh, potential uh, for um, a behavior that goes against norms to be punished or to be sanctioned. And so in in the studies that I've done in um, daily life, I focus more on violations of social norms, but then this is exactly how I describe these kinds of things to my participants as well. So um, it's something that goes against their own values, but also the shared expectations of their society about what is appropriate and something that can be sanctioned or punished.
0: Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the main... Uh, social functions of norms is it for people to have uh, expectations and also to know when to punish when not to punish how to establish relationships with other people i mean is that more or less it
1: yeah so i think uh, social norms can function sort of as a coordination uh, devices mm. so having these shared expectations allows people in cases where, say, there are not important conflicts of interest to just choose a similar course of action and coordinate in a in specific way of uh, behaving. Uh, in the case where there are conflicts of interest, yeah, norms can, I think, uh, yeah, again, act as a, um, ways basically to, to guide people's behavior and to promote cooperative behavior when there is conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, perhaps, to help decide who's wrong and who's right. I mean, to have sort of a guide to deal with conflict.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So, yeah, uh, if you think about contexts like the ones I study, where you have third party observers in order and and they observe uh, some kind of uh, offense or a behavior Mm -hmm. that might consider right or wrong, norms can guide uh, judgment to some extent.
0: And when do people consider that a particular norm has been violated?
1: Um, yeah, so I wonder how to answer this question. I can answer it with um, uh, based on the data that we have about okay. like the kinds of norm violations that people report to us. Okay. Yeah, so what we have what we have done in our studies is. Um, we've asked people to, uh, people in the Netherlands specifically, Mm -hmm. to report on uh, violations of norms that they experienced on a day-to-day basis. And we did this in a kind of longitudinal uh, way where we asked them every day for two weeks if they experienced some offense, uh, either against themselves or against another person. Uh, What we see is people often report say uh, violations of norms of politeness or cooperativeness in the sense of uh, you know, things that are rude behaviors, mean behaviors or aggressive uh, um, behaviors as norm violations. They also report um, many sexist or racist uh, incidents as norm violations that they experience. And also things that are more closely, sometimes more closely related to um, the kinds of norms of cooperation that we consider uh, in experimental studies, uh, so violations that have to do with public goods provision, like someone littering, someone not contributing to a group project, these sorts of things are also uh, present.
0: Mm-hmm. But um, how do norms arise? How is it that something becomes a norm? Is that uh, something that you also study or not so
1: much? Um yeah i would say uh, I would say not so much I would have to uh, draw on uh, on others' work on this uh, topic. What I'm currently interested in and I can say a little bit more about is a uh, distinction between um, norms that are external versus norms mm-hmm. that are more internalized mm-hmm. so yeah I don't have data to share on this issue, but I think this is a very interesting contrast between um Say needing some kind of external enforcement Mm -hmm. and external pressure uh, versus a norm that is more internalized and so has become part of a person's moral compass, moral values and guides their behavior without external enforcement. Uh, So I think this is a key difference and maybe this helps us also understand uh, differences in prosociality, basically. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So why do people punish norm violators?
1: Yeah, so this is a topic of uh, much uh, debate. I think in the literature there are many, many different um, uh, accounts of uh, what punishment is meant to achieve. Mm. Um, I think there are at least two main uh, ideas. So one would be that uh, when people punish norm violations, they still are in some way acting in a way that is in their best interest or the best interest of their kin, uh, their allies, their friends. Um, and another another perspective is more that uh, punishment has to do with uh, promoting group cooperation, uh, the, the welfare of the group, and um, uh, norms at the group level. So the the studies that I have done don't necessarily address this question directly, but I think I have some indirect evidence in support of uh, this first account, so that people punish in a way that promotes their uh, self-interest. So for example, I find that, and this is, I think, um, a recurrent finding in the literature, that people punish offenses against themselves Mm. uh, more harshly and in more uh, confrontational, direct ways, as compared to offenses targeting someone else. So we see much more, also in daily life context, much more second party punishment compared to third party punishment. Or um, we see, for example, that people uh, punish offenses, punish offenders that are close relationship partners, uh, people that they value
0: uh,
1: more and in more confrontational ways. So I take that as evidence that, you know, they are trying to change the behavior of people that they care about, basically um in a way that uh, potentially fits their future interests
0: Mm -hmm. do people also punish people who fail to punish the norm offenders
1: um yeah so at least in our uh at least in our studies i think we don't have uh many examples of this uh second order punishment so punishing Mm -hmm. uh, others who don't punish but uh, to be fair, we also didn't, didn't target these kinds of uh, behavior. So we had uh, specific prompts that had to do more with um, responses to offenders rather than uh, punishers or non punishers. But um, my interpretation of the literature and other studies is that it's, it's not always the case that people consider. Um, punishers to be uh, nice individuals, especially like nice or agreeable individuals. So I'm not sure that there are there are studies, for example, by um, uh, Kimo Erikson, Pontus Strimling, showing that uh, people perceive uh, punishers um, or perceive punishment as less appropriate than doing nothing, for example, under certain circumstances. So all of this to say that, I don't think it's always the case that observers perceive uh, punishment as the right thing to do against offenses. Uh, They might perceive it as aggressive or competitive and they need sort of more information to be able to say if punishment is the right thing to do and if punishment is socially motivated or not. Mm
0: -hmm. And do you have any idea why in certain cases people think that punishment is the right thing to do and in other cases not so much?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, and in that, yeah, I guess I am quite influenced by uh, Nicola Raihani's uh, work. I think that, yeah, there are certain, say, um, conditions under which as an observer, I might infer that punishment is socially motivated, and if I make this inference, I take punishment as a sign that the person is trying to promote a cooperative norm or something like this, uh, then I will think it is the right thing to do, potentially. Uh, but if in contrast, I make an inference that this is a, um, a competitively or aggressively motivated uh, behavior, uh, punishment, I might not like the punisher as much. So um, yeah, just to mention this briefly, we do have some data. I do have some data that um, looks at basically what kinds of personality traits uh, mm-hmm. correlate with punishment behavior. Um, so, I look at uh, two ideas. One is that it is prosocial individuals who will uh, engage in more punishment, um, following kind of this argument that a punishment is meant to promote uh, prosociality and cooperative norms. And the other one is that aggressive traits uh, correlate more with punishment. And I find consistent evidence for the second one, so um, aggressive individuals are more motivated to punish. So. There must be some additional conditions, in my opinion, some, uh, some institution that makes punishment serve cooperative goals or something like this, uh, for punishment to be perceived uh, positively and as a signal of cooperativeness.
0: When it comes to these personality traits, do they have anything to do with a particular inventory like the big five or something like that?
1: Yes, yes. So I have used in my research uh, the Hexical personality inventory because, um, yeah, it really differentiates between these components of agreeableness, which is more about niceness and lack of uh, anger and uh, honesty, humility. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I I look at these traits and I also look at uh, trait aggression um, with a a specific inventory developed to study this trait and uh, social value orientation, which is meant to capture kind of people's uh, pro-social motivations towards others.
0: Mm -hmm. So could you tell us about direct and indirect punishment?
1: Yes, so I've used this distinction a lot in uh, my work uh, so far and uh, originally I, I used or I read about this distinction more um, in the literature that has to do with aggression. Uh, so the distinction has to do with how basically confrontational and overt uh, versus uh, less confrontational and less costly the the tactics that we use uh, are. Mm-hmm. And so direct punishment, I consider as being a high cost uh, um, responses to offenses that are confrontational. So they might involve physical aggression or um, a verbal confrontation that is either aggressive or it can also be more constructive, but basically puts the the person who intervenes um, in a position that they are face to face with the offender. and. Uh, then there is a risk that they might receive counter-punishment or retaliation. Whereas um, indirect punishment, um, I consider as uh, tactics that are uh, more low-cost and uh, covert, so indirect. Uh, So, for example, things like gossiping or um, um, engaging in social exclusion. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that These indirect tactics um, don't expose the punisher, the person who intervenes, as much, and so they might reduce uh, certain risks involved in uh, punishing offenders.
0: Mm -hmm. So, you mentioned gossip there. Uh, What functions does gossip serve, apart from perhaps being a tool for indirect punishment?
1: Yes, yeah, so exactly. I think um, traditionally gossip has been seen as a, a tool of indirect aggression, mm-hmm. uh, indirect punishment. Mm-hmm. I think um, more recently, in the last decades, it has been proposed that gossip has kind of a key one of the, its key functions is to um, support um, indirect reciprocity systems or partner choice and in that way support cooperation. So then Uh, The idea is that uh, gossip is a key way to exchange uh, reputational information about others in your social network or in your group and this reputational information is um, key to figure out who you should cooperate with and who you should choose as a partner or avoid as a partner.
0: Right. So uh, I think that tied to all of these, we have the moral emotions. And there's a debate, I mean, among people who study these kinds of emotions, uh, the debate is basically about if it's possible really to distinguish between uh, different pairs of emotions, I guess, and if they are really distinct or not. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in your work, I read about disgust and anger is it possible yes. to really distinguish between these two
1: yes yeah, so i think that uh, disgust and anger generally like these systems are quite uh, distinguishable um mm. uh, if we're talking about pathogen disgust and anger so disgust originally is really in my view an adaptation to deal with um threats that have to do with pathogens in Mm -hmm. your environment, Um, but, uh, yeah, indeed the idea is that uh, disgust has kind of different domains that it applies to, and one of these domains is uh, morality, so we do observe that people report um, uh, experiencing disgust as well as anger in response to moral violations of all sorts, Um, that have to do also with harm, care, injustice, so we see people using disgust uh, language. Mm. But um, you are right that uh, distinguishing moral disgust from anger is much more difficult than distinguishing pathogen disgust from anger. uh, So people often do report experiencing a mixture of these emotions, experiences of moral disgust and anger are, Uh, they can be correlated, um, so it is it is definitely more tricky to uh, distinguish them, especially I think at the physiological level. Um, in the work that we have done, we really look at a distinction in terms of their consequences. So how moral disgust and how anger relate with different um, behavioral tendencies. And there we found across many, many studies, um, also replicated by other labs, that indeed we can, uh, we see Unique associations between anger, disgust, and different behaviors. So we see um, uh, that anger is specifically associated with kind of direct confrontational responses, yeah. and uh, disgust is associated more with these more indirect responses like gossip and uh, ostracism. Mm-hmm.
0: So in this case, when it comes to disgust, particularly you distinguish between uh, pathogen disgust, sexual disgust and moral disgust. I'm asking you about that because there are people that think that there's not really a third category of moral Mm -hmm. disgust, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. So, yeah, this is uh, this model that you're referring to is a work also by Josh Tiber on mm-hmm. this distinction between three domains. Yeah. Yes. So I, I do follow that uh, kind of framework in my work. And also I do observe like in the data that uh, people consistently report experiencing disgust in response to moral offenses that have no pathogen content and no kind of sexual content. So, they do report uh, disgust in response to moral violations uh, specifically. Um, yeah, and I also see that observers who see others experience uh, disgust interpret it in a similar way. So, uh, they interpret uh, this as having to do with some kind of moral sentiment and expect them to behave in specific ways.
0: Mm-hmm but when it comes because this is what we're talking about when it comes to the distinction between disgust particularly moral disgust and anger are there Mm -hmm. specific contexts or cues that uh, elicit these specific emotions
1: yes so there's i think there's been a substantial amount of work trying to link anger and moral disgust to different content of uh, moral violations, mm, okay. and uh, um, my interpretation actually is that of the findings is that that is not necessarily the case, so it's not necessarily the case that unique content uh, of moral violations elicit diff- elicits different uh, emotions. So also in our studies we see that the same kinds of uh, violations that have to do with harm Uh, that have to do with injustice, they elicit both anger and moral disgust. Um, In terms of the input or like the um, the kinds of contexts that elicit these emotions where we see differences is in the self-relevance of the norm violations. So we see that when uh, people experience a violation that is more um, uh, strongly targeting themselves, they report uh, feeling more anger, uh, but, when they observe a, a norm violation targeting someone else, uh, they experience more moral disgust mm-hmm. and so, in our view, um, this is functional in some way. The experience of moral disgust is then accompanied by you know gossip, uh, ostracism, and responses that um, maybe don't put the individual in so much risk, but they aim to recruit punishment from others and coordinate punishment with others when an offence has not been personally relevant.
0: Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem to have uh, anything to do with the content of of the norm that is being violated.
1: I mean, this is a this is definitely a a point of uh, ongoing uh, debate. But okay. uh, speaking based on my data, um, I observe that the same kinds of violations elicit both kinds of emotions. Mm. But then, who is targeted, and what are the uh, what are the specific costs of the violation for the self mm-hmm. uh, might affect emotional responses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it just came to my mind that. It would make sense. I mean, you can tell me if it makes sense or not, but that perhaps norms that have to do so... Let's think about, for example, moral foundations theory and Mm -hmm. uh, the moral foundation of sanctity purity that is usually associated with things related to religion, for example, and the moral emotion of disgust. So, I mean... Would it make sense that if a norm that is related to sanctity purity, if it was to be violated, it would elicit uh, moral disgust? And, for example, if it was a norm related to, I don't know, care, harm, fairness, it would elicit anger. I mean, do you think that, that that could make sense?
1: I think so. I think so. I am am, uh, just not sure to what extent, you know, the the data that we have and uh, not just uh, in my studies, but more broadly in the literature that they support such a clear cut distinction, especially when we're talking about harm violations. So it seems that violations that have to do with harm elicit all sorts of negative moral emotions. with purity and sanctity uh, violations, I do think that disgust might might play uh, a key role as the predominant response uh, mm-hmm. there. Um, but we really need to study this uh, in situations, you know, so with violations that don't have. Uh, pathogen or sexual content. So often, these violations that are related to purity or sanctity are also related to. Uh, yeah, so they have. They contain pathogen cues or cues to uh, uh, some kind of sexual misconduct or something like this. And so the disgust we observe as a response might not be moral disgust uh, per se. So. Uh, I think it is key there to use the kinds of uh, cues and stimuli that can differentiate between these uh, possibilities.
0: Mm-hmm. Would there be individual differences here? Because it seems that different people have different levels of disgust sensitivity,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do We do observe um, that there are, indeed individual differences in disgust sensitivity across also these domains of uh, pathogen sexual and moral disgust no. um, and there are also for example sex differences in disgust sensitivity that are uh, quite well documented so yes indeed that is the case i think
0: mm-hmm. so um is there of course as we've been talking about disgust manifests in many different areas uh, so one of them or do you think is there evidence that there's a link between disgust sensitivity and for example opposition to immigration
1: um yeah so i think uh, there are indeed many uh, mostly correlational studies that okay. have uh, looked at this relationship and find indeed that say uh, people who are more disgust uh, sensitive also have more conservative attitudes mm-hmm. and uh, um, among those attitudes they have more negative attitudes towards outgroups and towards uh, immigrants. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the evidence in that regard is uh, correlational. Uh, we have tried, uh, with, uh, together with Annika Karinen and others, um, to conduct an experimental uh, study uh, to try to test uh, this idea that um, disgust sensitivity uh, relates with uh, um, a negative attitudes towards outgroups, and testing different accounts for uh, why this might be the case.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but would it have anything to do with, for example, contact avoidance or something else?
1: Yes, exactly so in that study that we did with um Annika we test two um different accounts of okay. why disgust sensitivity might relate with um uh, negative attitudes towards immigrants. One is exactly contact avoidance. So mm. um one idea in this literature is that um, individuals who are more disgust sensitive avoid people from um, different uh, countries or different ecologies, so uh, uh, people who are immigrants, because uh, they might pose um, a stronger pathogen risk. And this is because they come from a different ecology potentially with uh, carrying pathogens that one is not um, immune to one is not able to face based on the immunity they have developed in the local ecology so according to this perspective we would see a stronger relationship between disgust sensitivity and uh, negative attitudes towards immigrants when there is contact The more contact I have with them, the more I would uh, feel scared about um, uh, this pathogen risk. Uh, We propose, and we, I mean, we're not the ones that propose it, but we test an alternative to this, Mm -hmm. which is that um, the relationship has to do more with uh, traditional norms and abidance Mm -hmm. to norms that have to do with, um, you know, say food preparation or hygiene, et cetera. A separate reason why disgust might relate with negative attitudes uh, to outgroups is because we think that they they have very different norms mm. about uh, hygiene-related or pathogen-related things, and so long as they don't adapt with the local norms, um, we want to uh, uh, keep um, yeah we want to keep them away. Something like this. So we test these alternative uh, accounts in an experiment. Um, and uh, basically we manipulate the extent that people can expect to have contact with an immigrant in a Mm -hmm. hypothetical scenario and also the extent to which this person assimilates to norms or not Mm -hmm. and we find we find basically support for the traditional uh, norms uh, idea so we see that Discuss um, sensitivity uh, is associated with um, more negative attitudes uh, towards immigrants who don't assimilate to local norms. When they don't assimilate to local norms, when they do assimilate, this relationship is uh, much, much uh, weaker. Mm-hmm. We don't see that contact matters as much.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you know if parasite stress theory would also apply here?
1: Yes, yeah, so parasite stress theory, um, I guess would suggest that, yes, I am not sure about the predictions it would make uh, for this particular uh, context. Um, I need to think about this. I suppose it would suggest that at least at a first level, the higher the, the um, uh, parasite uh, stress, the higher the pathogen prevalence Mm-hmm. Uh, the more uh, discuss sensitivity and the, potentially the stricter the norms mm-hmm. that have to do with uh, dealing with pathogens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it would predict that a more uh, pathogen stress would be associated with more um, uh, traditionalism and more conservative mm-hmm. attitudes. Um, yeah, in that sense, there is a study uh, conducted by, um, I don't know if you are aware of this, by Josh Tyber and colleagues across different uh, countries where they look exactly at the relationship between uh, parasite stress and disgust sensitivity and different kinds of uh, facets of conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find that uh, parasite stress and disgust sensitivity is specifically associated with traditionalism. So. Yeah this tendency to abide to uh, norms that have to do with uh, pathogen avoidance, uh, but also other traditional norms, and it has less to do with, um, it is less associated with social dominance orientation, so really this kind of um, competitive, conservative attitudes that consider certain groups to be more dominant over others.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I asked you about that because it could be another ecological factor in this case, influencing people's disgust sensitivity that then would have implications in terms of their um, views toward norms, uh, norm violation, political uh, orientation, etc. So, I mean, basically in this case, pathogen load, so...
1: Yes yeah, so i i do see how uh, pathogen uh, prevalence will influence disgust sensitivity and the strictness of local norms when mm-hmm. it comes to um yeah pathogen related uh, behaviors but mm-hmm. i think that so long as one would perceive that um immigrants or uh yeah incoming populations adapt to these strict local norms uh we shouldn't observe uh Or we should see a dampening of these negative attitudes. Mm -hmm. At least this is what our findings suggest.
0: Okay. So changing topics now, when there's hierarchy and power asymmetries in human societies, how is cooperation achieved and maintained?
1: yeah so um this is also a a, it's a tricky question i think there have been different uh, propositions in the literature about this so i come more from a social psychology background as you mentioned at the beginning and there uh there has been a lot of work really looking at the um, the corruptive effects of power Mm -hmm. so giving people uh more power in a situation and creating uh hierarchical uh, differences makes those in power less cooperative, more selfish, etc. So according to this kind of uh, view, um, introducing power differences might have negative effects for uh, cooperation. Um, But at the same time there are alternative propositions suggesting that hierarchies and hierarchical institutions help us uh, coordinate. Um, and in that way, I mean, facilitate kind of uh, achieving common goals in a society. Um, In my own research, what I've tried to do is to uh, really look at how this could potentially happen. And to study this, I've looked at how um, people with different kinds of power positions, how they use, again, different tactics of uh, punishment in order to promote cooperation. Um, The idea there being that um, when you are in a high power position, you might um, uh, feel entitled, but also feel like uh, it is possible for you to engage in direct uh, types of punishment, costly types of punishment, without expecting much retaliation because of your position and because of the uh, power you have um whereas if you're in a low power position you might uh opt for different kinds of tactics and this is really building on this uh, idea of a reverse dominance hierarchy right so that uh, people who are uh, in a say subordinate or low power position in a society or in an organization or wherever are not gonna necessarily confront uh, violations by a high power individual, uh, not alone in any case, but they're gonna use things like uh, gossiping um, uh, with others in order to coordinate punishment and then kind of form a coalition um, to promote cooperation. So these these were the ideas that I uh, I set out to test in some experiments and also in uh, in the study that I mentioned earlier in this daily life setting uh, in the experiments that I've done, I didn't really find uh, support for this, uh, this idea that people use different uh, strategies to promote cooperation depending on their power. Um, yeah, this could be because of different uh, reasons. Uh, one is that the particular context that I studied didn't involve uh, much conflict of interest. It was a situation that was relatively um, benign. It was relatively easy for people to establish uh, cooperation there. In the daily life studies that we've conducted, we do find evidence that um, uh, high-power individuals uh, punish more confrontationally, and individuals who feel they have low power use more gossip, ostracism, more indirect ways of uh, intervening. Mm
0: -hmm. But so it's not necessarily the case that uh, more uh, societies that are more hierarchical have more difficulty... Uh, promoting cooperation?
1: Um, yeah, so I think, uh, the, yeah, I guess the short answer is, uh, no, but also mm-hmm. this is not something that I have, do, uh, that I have tested, uh, directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my interpretation is that say different societies might come up with different solutions to, uh, cooperation problems. So, uh, and the scale might matter, so when we move from small scale to larger scale societies, hierarchies might be one kind of way to deal with uh, coordination or cooperation problems. Um, But this is also just one kind of institutional solution, but we do see this tendency that as the scale uh, of cooperation problems increases, um, institutions uh, become uh, key. And hierarchy can be an institution that uh, facilitates coordination in these contexts. Mm
0: -hmm. So one last topic. Uh, What is interdependence and how does it relate to cooperation in people's daily lives?
1: Yeah, so this is, a, this is a topic that I did a lot of work on uh, during my uh, PhD and um, this con- concept of uh, interdependence has a, has a long history, uh, also in social psychology. Um, starting with uh, Kelly and Thibault in like uh, the 60s, 70s uh, and up to today. It has to do with really like um, the structure um, um, of uh, social situations, social interactions. Uh, So really how the the choices that uh, people have in a social interaction, how they affect their own and others outcomes. It's really just I think a way to um, understand um, the games that people are playing with others uh, in uh, their day-to-day lives and this is also how we approach this in, the, in our uh, studies. Um, so we, we look at, um, when thinking about interdependence, uh, two things like the objective interdependence, the situation, uh, so really how, what is the structure, how do people's choices affect outcomes, but we also look at the subjective interdependence. So as an interactant with you say in this interview, how do I perceive that my choices affect uh, our outcomes? Um, and this could be different from the objective uh, reality. Uh, so what we, what we did in the, the work that you mentioned is we again used a methodology where we asked people about the social situations they experience on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we ask them about how they perceive the social situations they face in terms of different dimensions of interdependence. So we focus on three key dimensions based on this theoretical framework that are um, mutual dependence, so basically how much uh, our uh, behaviors influence each other, um, uh, conflict of interest, so whether uh, we can achieve An outcome that is good for both of us, or whether our interests are conflicting and also power asymmetries. Um, So who has more power to uh, influence the other's outcomes in the interaction? And we see how these affect cooperative behaviors in these daily life contexts. So what we find is a conflict in particular is uh, very important. So the more conflict of interests people perceive, the less they cooperate themselves and the less they see their partners cooperating Mm -hmm. Um, and returning to power, because you mentioned it before. uh, We don't find that power has a a direct influence on cooperation in daily life, but we find that if you are in um, conflict of interest situations, then uh, power makes things worse. So Mm. within conflicts, uh, having high power negatively affects uh, cooperative behaviors
0: that is the person who has more power uh, cooperates less is that it?
1: Mm-hmm. exactly yes yes in the presence of conflict exactly
0: mm-hmm. so uh and uh, i mean of course this is still you're still studying this but uh how does it Uh, compared to other approaches to cooperation, particularly in social psychology? Do you think that interdependence is a better framework to understanding human cooperation than, than other frameworks out there?
1: Um, well yeah I wouldn't say it is better I would say definitely that it is uh, complementary to many other frameworks what Mm -hmm. I think is nice with uh, interdependence theory is that it's at least in my mind and based on the research that I have done it really uh, allows for links across different disciplines Mm -hmm. Um, and it allows Uh, hopefully to, you know, reach a common language when social psychologists are discussing with economists or with evolutionary biologists. I say this because interdependence uh, theory to a large extent was based on game theory Mm. and it has an emphasis on the objective situation and so in a sense like the games that people play and so it can create a link between the ways social psychologists view uh, cooperation problems with the ways, um, say, behavioral economists view cooperation problems, or evolutionary biologists view cooperation problems, and also there's been some work trying uh, really to study uh, more fitness interdependence, Um, so linking uh, this concept of interdependence with other concepts from evolutionary biology. So I think it is a theory that uh, yeah, allows for these links, hopefully.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, just before we go, where can people find you and your work on the internet?
1: Um, yeah, so people can find uh, my work on my website. Uh, and they should be able to find all my papers there. Uh, It's uh, Catherine Molo on GitHub. So if you look for that, you can find them. And I'm also on Twitter as uh, at Catherine Molo. and people can always uh, feel free to reach me uh, via email, etc., that they can find uh, on these pages.
0: Okay, great. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, yeah, and uh, again, I I really enjoyed it and uh, I very much enjoy your interviews in general, so thanks,
0: yeah. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by NLights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Paruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alec, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Linkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolfkin, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron. Philip Force Connelly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Guintes, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Nieberger, goldstein Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegaard, Rui Inacio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Cavanaugh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Diogni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cousin, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross... Jonathan Labrand, Oslin Bulut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J. W. Juan Eira, Tom Hammel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Idan Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego London Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Stasebsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, uh, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortés, Úrsula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, and Max Bailby, my producers, our Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Liniars, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Ruzeski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.